I guess I should have mentioned this earlier. Like I screwed up a whole bunch of stuff at Shopify too. Oh, let's get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Today on the show, we have Harry Brundage, who has taken his experience in the early years of Shopify, seeing it grow from a small Canadian startup into the go-to e-commerce platform it is today. We talked to Harry about how to scale an e-commerce platform that serves many, many sites, each dealing with its own spiky load that can be triggered by viral sensations, and how Shopify manages to handle all of that. Harry finished up as the Director of Engineering for Shopify and has now founded his own serverless e-commerce platform called Gadget that aims to help you build e-commerce apps in hours, not weeks. In fact, on their own site, they say... Death to boilerplate. Gadget's not a janky, GUI-based code replacement. We believe that code is the best way to express new ideas, but we also believe developers spend way too much time writing code that's already been written before. This might sound like a direct challenge to his former employer, but in fact, Gadget provides integrations to Shopify, Magento, WooCommerce, and many others. So this is an interesting conversation and one worth listening to if you have an online shop or you're thinking of starting one, which could be almost everyone, I guess. So enough from us for now. Let's hear from Harry. Hey, everyone. My name is Harry Brendage, and I am a developer developer. (laughs) What is a developer developer? I, I was just looking for something cheeky to describe like i just really i really care about the craft of software development i've been a developer my whole life and come to really enjoy it and i think it's like a a classic craftsperson thing to want to work on your own tools you know and satisfy yourself and so what i've spent kind of the past many moons doing is figuring out how to develop software better and to work with the people who develop software to to get better at it are you developing developers as a developing developer? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think in, inside the company, absolutely. And then the aspiration or the kind of current goal is to develop developers outside the company as well using the the software that my company's building. All right, cool. So that's some that's some good stuff for us to to get into. But but I suppose before we get to that, like, what, what's your background? Let's go back. Where where are you? Where are you from? And how, how did you get here? Absolutely. So I'm a Canadian. Uh, uh, Sam was just mentioning that it's the the Jubilee weekend in the UK right now. And so we're not as passionate about the Queen, but still somewhat, you know. <laughs> She's still in your money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, on the loonies and toonies, if you're familiar. Oh, yes, absolutely. Loonies yeah, and toonies. Yeah. I'm familiar yeah. with that, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so which part of Canada are you from? Yeah, I'm in Ottawa, which is kind of northeast of Toronto. And notably colder because there's no like lake effects to keep the snow. But the reason I'm here is because it's where the Shopify HQ is. I don't know if ah. you all are familiar with Shopify, the e-commerce company, but that's where I worked for a long time. I, I think we might have heard of Shopify. Yeah, they sound, sound familiar. <laughs> Not to be confused with the European tech giant, Spotify, which is... I always get them mixed up. I always just get confused. Everybody, all the time. Oh, absolutely. Are people often, often asking you about the Shopify model, are they, and wanted to know how you structure your company? Is that... Uh, for sure, for sure. I think <laughs> I've I, I heard Toby, like the CEO of Shopify, mess it up exactly once. Like he had just like Freudian slip or whatever, and like the entire company was like, "Oh, ho, 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 gotcha!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, is it it's a Canadian company in Shopify? I don't think I knew that. Yep, uh, Toby is he's German, and I, I think he I'm not sure exactly when he left Germany, but he grew up in Germany and then moved to Ottawa. I think for love. 
I think the story is he met an enticing young woman in a World of Warcraft guild and came to Canada to snowboard and meet her. And then it was the snowboarding thing that turned into his, he wanted to start an e-commerce snowboarding store. And then that turned into, oh, well, there's no great tool for this. And I'm a programmer. I'm going to build a platform for making e-commerce stores. And now it's the e-commerce juggernaut. Classic 21st century love story there. That should be a book or a series (laughs) or something. Exactly. Exactly. Was that your first uh, job going to to Shopify or had you had what 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 had led you up to Shopify? Yeah, um, so I met Shopify at this uh, undergrad software engineering conference in uh, Montreal, and I was still in school and I met them and they were the only company I knew of that was doing Ruby on Rails um, development at the time, like anywhere close to me, and that was kind of what I'd just been picking up in in kind of my spare time at university. So I was like terribly, terribly nervous to talk to them because it was like the one cool company I wanted to work for and like had a great conversation with a few of the people at the conference and then kind of bid them adieu. And then they like hunted me down later. It's like, I can't believe we didn't ask you if you wanted to like interview or something like that. Like, you, you know, all this stuff about all these things that we're using. So it was, it was a super awesome internship. And then I just never went back to school where like at the end of the internship, I'd learned more in that like four months of summer working with all these smart people on all these like challenging problems than I had in kind of the three years prior of university. So I ended up dropping out to stay at Shopify, which was a pretty like intense decision at the time. Like I think it worked out, right? Because Shopify did really, really well. And so I think I like in retrospect, it was a great decision, but like had it not gone well, I'm not so sure it would have been the right decision. So it's it's interesting to reflect on that, you know, but I'm really glad I did. It was incredible experience was it working remotely at that point or did you have an office no no it was fully on site so i i joined the ottawa office which is the only shopify office at the time i think there's like a few folks in winnipeg maybe which is another canadian city and then i watched it grow from i think it's maybe like 50 60 employees at the time to sort of over three thousand. and i left before the switch to the full remote that they've done recently Mm-mm. you know i don't need to tell you anyone anybody this but shopify is massive like they are you know if anyone comes to me for like they want to start a store or whatever you know they've got all, all these different platforms for me uh spot hey, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> shopify they just the facto thing i tell people is the most mature platform it's it's just got it's so feature rich easy to develop on create your own themes and all the rest of it it's just it's just a great step up from something like etsy it's uh it's, it's great must have learned a lot there absolutely yeah i think um it was it was wild just watching the organization and the technology constantly be broken if that makes sense like when so the 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 company was doubling in headcount like a, like 100 percent employee growth kind of year over year for i don't know seven years in a row and then the traffic and the number of active merchants was growing even faster than that and so it's just like everything we learned one year kind of like stopped working in like a year later because it was an order of magnitude difference, you know, of challenge that the, you know, that, that solution had to meet. So yeah, certainly, certainly wild. I mean, yes, yeah, so that'd be really interesting to hear more about actually then. So did you find yourself quite frustrated during these times? Were you working like long hours? I have this, I'm watching We Crash right now, which is an Apple Thing on you know the we work stuff and it just it just paints this picture of utter chaos and crazy scale and growth and stuff that they can't quite handle was there anything like that oh yeah absolutely 
so the, the, the big thing that I participated in was uh, Shopify's flash sale safety. What that means is when an enormous merchant, like, you know, does a drop, they list a whole bunch of new inventory that kind of like wasn't there before. And there's a rabid horde of customers who all want to buy it at the same time. Uh, it's just a really demanding technical problem. And so this happens a lot for like sneakers or like uh, uh, makeup kits from some of like the Kardashians or whomever, even just like a, a product that's featured in a Super Bowl ad or on like Good Morning America. There's this very, this very annoying problem where it's not this like ambient traffic that like slowly ramps up into the morning, but this like 10 to 100x traffic spike kind of out of the blue. And from the platform's, per- platform's perspective, it's like largely unpredictable. Right, like we don't have anyone looking at what's on Good Morning America today, or like what we don't get told about the Super Bowl ads ahead of time. So we just kind of have to be ready to deal with this like massive influx of traffic. And the annoying part about it is that it's really like right heavy, kind of like complicated traffic, if you will. In that it's we're not just like serving the web pages that are cached. We're like rendering kind of the checkout, facilitating credit card payments managing inventory counts so that, you know, if there's only X many sneakers available, we don't sell more than that. So it's kind of like the more complicated business processes that Shopify facilitates also have to be the most scalable, which is just like a nasty technical problem. And, you know, in those moments, it's just unprecedented scale and and demand on your servers, like to have to, I mean, obviously there's auto scaling and stuff like that happening, but just to be able to make sure that you're prepared and it sounds like an impossible task, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. So the, to answer your earlier question about how how bananas was working there, how like personally taxing and just kind of like, you know, a wildfire was it? Those things caused the most kind of pain because if the flash sale happened and we weren't, you know, scalable enough to handle it, the whole platform would go down. Shopify is built in a very like multi-tenant way where everyone's kind of sharing the same pool of resources. And that means that if one customer exhausts those resources, there's none left for the other customers. And, you know, many thousands of merchants, core businesses, you know, are unavailable. And so they were obviously super pissed about that. And so it was like a kind of threat to the business, like a really credible kind of thing. Um, Toby at the time made the decision to say yes to these flash sale customers. Be like, this is like a really healthy thing for our business is to challenge ourselves to be able to like create something that could do this. But uh, it meant that it fell to the tech team to like figure out a bunch of solutions to, to actually scale in that way. The big, the big challenge and the thing that yeah caused me to work the long hours was just the database. It was that, yes, we could auto-scale the kind of web tier. We could paper over the fact that Ruby and Rails aren't the fastest systems in the world just by adding more servers. But we couldn't just add more database. So we had to do a lot of work to add kind of what I would call middle tier caching if that makes sense. So instead of caching rendered web pages, we were caching kind of medium built data blobs, like not just raw rows from the database, but like chunks of data that weren't changing in the face of all of this right heavy traffic, such that we can alleviate a bunch of load on the DB. It's really interesting. And I was going to ask what it's built into. It's, it, maybe not so much now, but it was, so at the time it was Ruby on Rails, right? Yeah, yeah. So and it still, still mostly is. I think it's one of the biggest Rails apps in the world. Wow. And can you claim any kind of innovations or quite cool things you're proud of, of of building at that time that that you can share yeah absolutely so i think there's two how, how nerdy do you want do you want extra nerdy or medium nerdy we're all nerds here including you <laughs> listener okay so in this like flash sale moment 
it really is a rabid horde. Like it's a lot of people who like, maybe they're like scalping whatever they're buying on eBay or, or what have you, but they're like really motivated. And so they're like smashing the refresh button over and over and over trying to like get in the kind the queue. What that means is like one person or it, it's kind of like a, a DDoS attack in, in a way in that it's like a lot of people generating a lot of traffic and a lot of the traffic is kind of nonsense. If you hit refresh 18 times, it's the 18th request that we need to serve, not requests one through 17. And we had this big problem of just like detecting if between when someone's browser sent the request to us and when we were finally ready to give them the response, were they even still listening? Like ha- had they refreshed a bunch of times since then? And or were we just doing work that was going to go nowhere by the end of it? And so one of the nerdiest and funnest things that we figured out was like through the kind of load balancing tier or like all the stuff that, that kind of allowed us to do that auto scaling stuff for Shopify, there was kind of a, an amount of time that it took for a request to make its way through all those queues. And during that time, someone could submit more refreshes and thus you know make those requests no longer necessary. We, we decided that once the request had made it through all the queues, we were going to write one byte back to the browser to test if that write worked or not and then do the processing. So I don't know if it's still the case, but it was the case for many years that if you made a web request to Shopify, you would like sit and wait for a little bit and then you get an H back on the socket of like the HTTP kind of 1.1 like response. And that would test that the connection was alive and then the rest of everything would come back at you. And we thought that that was a crafty and nifty way to just like test kind of connection liveness. It's like a reverse prefetch type of thing. Like Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I'm pretty sure I've seen that age before. I was wondering what the hell it was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's like it's probably this was kind of in a in an era before web performance. I think was so well understood by the the JavaScript community or just I guess the web community at large. And I, I think it's probably kind of a no no these days because it just creates a bunch more round trips and kind of like slows. I, I guess it improves time till first byte, but I, I remember us thinking it through and realizing there was kind of an experience downside. I don't remember exactly what it was. Wow, less requests the better, generally, isn't it? It's it... or or just maybe it's more more packets is bad, right? Like you want kind of uh, as little bandwidth as little communication as possible. But it's an interesting problem to have, though, to to have to scale a multi tenanted platform that's serving many many different. Uh, shops really and each one may have flash sales or uh it may have um you know some sort of viral impact uh, you know in whatever way shape or form that's going to drive those traffic spikes that you probably really can't predict at all so i mean you, you know you talked about scaling the database did and you know you mentioned a couple of things in there about the, the queues and obviously i know you're not at Spot- shopify anymore i nearly said spotify then. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I'm interested in how that architecture evolved from that sort of, uh, you know, the, the first days of of Ruby on Rails to what it ended up being. Because uh, you were there for a long time, right? It was six and a bit years or something. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's right. Does that architecture evolve? Does that database get broken up in any way, shape or form? I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. So the when I started, Shopify was, it was, it had always been multi-tenant. So it was many customers within the same database. And so there would be like a shops database table that had one row per shop and then a products table that had everyone's products on the same table with a shop ID column. Is it all SQL as well? 
Uh, yeah, it was all MySQL at the time. Yeah, plus a lot of Redis. The multi-tenant, like everyone in the same database architecture, was great specifically because of flash sales. Because what it meant was the whole platform's capacity was available to any one customer at any time. Uh, that makes sense, yeah. We didn't have to say, like, deploy three VMs for this customer and five VMs for this customer and then write a whole bunch of code to kind of dynamically allocate resources among them. We kind of had this, like, pool of app servers that could serve any request for any shop, which meant that, you know, when you had these 100,000x anomalous events, like, one customer could consume, you know, 99% of the available kind of server resources, which may be bad from a business-making-money standpoint, but really good from a staying-up and like actually facilitating these like flash sales standpoint. Fast forward seven or eight years, Shopify has built a really big brand among the biggest merchants in the world as kind of like flash sale immune, or like one of the only places you can go to serve these. And it's because of that architecture that kind of allows, you know, little to no time in allocating more resources to any one tenant. Did, did you have to sort of keep a certain amount of headroom there available then? Yes, we were wildly over-provisioned. Like most of the time, we're, we're, it was sitting at maybe like 20%-ish CPU usage across, cr- across the app servers. And so what would you get up to when you hit a flash sale then? Uh, 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 100%. Like it would often saturate it. Oh, really? Just max it out? Yeah. And so, so it, would, it was routine that one merchant's flash sale would 5 to 10x the entire rest of the platform's traffic combined. Wow. So it's like, say there's 20,000 merchants or something like that. It's like one out of 20,000 is driving more traffic than 19,999 other merchants by a factor of five. And why is that? Is that because there's such small merchants that are using Shopify to get going? I think at the time, uh, to, to some extent, yeah. Like it, it wasn't, you know, the giant marquee brands that Shopify might be associated with today. And then it was, these were the very biggest customers who were kind of pushing that envelope. To be completely honest, it was a testament to those specific customers' ability to tap into some cultural phenomenon, right? That they, they could drive, you know, a gazillion people to a website all at the same time who had a, a deep, deep need to get some product. You're talking about like, you know, allocating of VMs and stuff. And obviously that's a particularly complicated way that you could go about doing, which many places have done actually. But uh, was there conversations about how you could do that so that maybe you weren't at least sitting there with 80% of reserved capacity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So at the time, I'm talking, this is maybe 2013, 2014, Shopify was still on metal. So we were still kind of on servers in a couple of data centers. So, and we were also not running within a uh, container orchestration system or something like that. Like we were just starting to dockerize the application altogether. And so uh, it would have been great to auto scale. We just didn't have the primitives. And so since then, Shopify has lifted and shifted into Google Cloud Platform. So all the all the databases, all the app tier run on Kubernetes clusters in in GCP, and I I don't have it on. I'm not 100 percent certain, but I would be deeply surprised if it's not doing that auto scaling at this point. And then the other thing that happened is, as Shopify got bigger, and as that the kind of distribution across the sizes of merchants changed, as you mentioned, the ambient loads grew to be much more demanding, such that the flash sales are almost less anomalous. They're still as big as they ever were, but the kind of base case is big enough such that there's kind of a lot more slack to absorb it, such that, yeah, maybe a two or three minute, you know, Kubernetes node auto scale response time is is acceptable at this point. Whereas it wouldn't have been in the flash sale days because jumping like 5xing your capacity only means you can serve the traffic two or three minutes after 
kind of the event started, which means you hemorrhaged and lost a bunch of money for your merchants for those two to three minutes it took to spin up the nodes. Was that quite a big shift for you then moving to Kubernetes or did you moved up to a senior enough level at that point that, uh, that, that it was more somebody else's problem and you were just directing them? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. So it, it was kind of strange. The way that it went down was my, me, my, I was quite confident the cloud would be better for us, but I didn't really have the support of many of the other folks, mostly because they had a giant roadmap of like actual platform features to build. And they were like, the cloud unlocks one thing for us, which is auto scaling, but that's not the most important thing. Like this is broken. That's broken. The database needs to be sharded. Like there's tons and tons of other kind of like core platform improvements to make. So I don't think they were wrong to be like, I'm not so sure this is valuable right now. And then what happened was uh, GDPR became a thing. And so data um, sovereignty and kind of like data, I forget what the exact word is, like where you reside the data, data residency, I guess, that all of a sudden became important. And so Shopify all of a sudden needed to split where we actually stored various merchants' data. It couldn't just be like one active data center and one passive data center. It needed to be like the European data center is serving European merchants and the American data center is serving everyone else. And so the prospect of like building out a European data center seemed about as hard as shifting to the cloud and then being able to like software define a European data center. And so that that was the kind of the tipping point. Funnily enough, we tried to containerize, or sorry, Kubernetesize Shopify in like a Hack Days project one time. This is like Shopify's kind of Hack Week or whatever that you hear about big companies. You know, devs are allowed to do whatever they want for two days, and we succeeded. We we like got Shopify into Kubernetes in like two days, and I think that was a big thing too. Is that me and a few people that you know had touched a lot of the infrastructure were able to prove, okay, this is not a six month long, incredibly risky thing. We like got you know, 70% of the way there in two days. And it's because we were already Dockerized. And I think that built a lot of confidence in the tech leadership. It's like, okay, this is doable. It's still going to take a long time to like figure out a migration plan and everything, but it's not uh, untenable. So I think a lot of people went through that sort of thing of trying to convince certain other people in leadership that cloud was a good idea or, or, or um, and, and other people were on the other side. What, what was it that um, helped you to come to the conclusion that um, cloud was the right thing to do? Great question. The key for me was the agility. So Shopify was a fast growing business with a lot of money and like doing really well, but knowing that, you know, that those ever growing orders of magnitude of growth were coming our way, such that we were going to need to change how we did everything all the time. Like that was kind of the rule of thumb at Shopify. It's like, if you built a system that lasted for two or three years, that was a win because two or three years from now, it's like two orders of magnitude more traffic going through the thing probably merits maybe a different approach. And so I was just really concerned with like getting off the hamster wheel of provisioning more servers and spending a bunch of time like caring about disk health and like the temperature of fans and stuff. Like I spent a lot of my time working on a Hadoop cluster where, yeah, we had like a major cooling problem in our racks. And I was like, it's, this just doesn't feel that important to me. You know what I mean? I want to get Google, who's the best in the world at this shit, who has like Iceland, literal ocean ice water flowing through their data centers, dealing with the cooling problem. Like they, they, it seems like that should be the person to deal with that, not friggin' Harry from Kingston worried about eating more chocolate, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the agility was the thing for me. So I, I don't actually think 
it was all that much more cost effective. Maybe with the auto scaling stuff in place, it was, but it was more the, our dev teams can get that much more productive or we can use Google's managed services and not have to like babysit this stuff ourselves or uh, speed and kind of more productivity out of the existing dev team. You've obviously learned so much and seen such scale happen right before your eyes and having to deal with that. You probably took a lot, a lot of learning from that. How do, how do we get into Gadget? Or, I mean, was it, was it from Shopify to Gadget or was there an interim? There, there was indeed an interim, but but yeah, that, that's the gist of it is that, I guess I should have mentioned this earlier, like I screwed up a whole bunch of stuff at Shopify too. Oh, let's get into that. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the if, you, if you take some like 24 year old who didn't even finish his degree and be like, scale the platform, right? Like some things are going to go wonky and that's exactly what happened. So I think what Gadget is, is me trying to bottle up those kind of hard won lessons into a tool that kind of guides people such that they don't have to make them, right? I, I want to be a giant that others can stand on the shoulders of. So some good examples would be like during that kind of phase where the flash sales were taking Shopify down, a lot of it was because we had poorly performing database queries and like no ability to sort of optimize the data access patterns, if that makes sense. It sounds very general, but you can think of a Shopify store kind of like a WordPress instance in that there's like a bunch of data in the database, like posts and pages and articles and whatever. And then there's a theme, which is straight up code that like accesses the data from the database to render out kind of a customized experience for the merchant. The merchant tends not to be technical, right? Like they didn't author the theme, they customized it or whatever, but some developer somewhere wrote the theme. In WordPress's case, the themes are PHP and in Shopify's case, the themes are written in this template language called Liquid. Liquid is by all intents and purposes, like a full-on programming language. So if you squint, what Shopify is doing is like running user-submitted programs to generate HTML. And those user-submitted programs can like access whatever data they want. Unlike WordPress, um, where it's like you go to wordpress.com, you buy an instance with an instance size. And like if you bought the wrong size instance and you have some you know Reddit spike of traffic to your WordPress instance and it just goes down, Shopify kind of adopted the responsibility for the scalability of each of the tenants right? Like they said, we will run your user submitted code, add fricking nauseum and make you as much money as you can possibly send our way. Again, it was like, we're not going to say no to these big customers. We're going to try and scale with them. But what that means is like Shopify had to get really good at running these user submitted templates that can kind of do unpredictable things, you know, like iterate over all the products in the, in the store every time you render the page or like do a nested loop where you iterate over all the products and then iterate over all the products within that. Like iteration, you, know? you didn't ever think about rolling your own well obviously leveraging liquid but rolling your own kind of layer on top where you m- might want to limit those types of things where if a developer doesn't quite know what they're doing pro- i'm probably one of those developers you know i've touched a bit of, uh, <laughs> shopify in my time but yeah was there any thoughts about rolling your own kind of templating language that yeah it's just a bit more controlled or, or, or safe for sure for sure one of the big issues was that Shopify had so much liquid already written and such an ecosystem built around it. They didn't want to just abandon those folks. And so I think forever they're going to support, you know, some liquid of some sort. But to answer your question, like the first thing that I think people did is just added kind of resource consumption limits where it's like your, your liquid gets, you know, maximum one second to execute. And if it's not done by then, like we're just going to kill it. Like that's a, that's your bad. You know, our, our generosity only goes so far. So there's, there, it's not kind of no holds barred. But the 
future or kind of like what's happening in Shopify right now, and uh, I promise this actually does pertain to Gadget, is I think <laughs> switching the data access pattern where like when you run a liquid template, you kind of don't like the platform doesn't know what data you're going to access until you access it. It's like you do product dot images at two dot source URL. And that's like evaluated like a JavaScript engine or whatever would evaluate it where it's like each dot access maybe has to go fetch something out of the database. Whereas if you look at say like uh, React front ends these days, a lot of them use GraphQL where you kind of have this like ahead of time manifest that specifies all the data that you want. You send that to the server, you get all the data you want back. And then you're just working with these like in memory objects that you've retrieved already. So it's this split up of fetch the data that you need ahead of time, efficiently in bulk, and then render it. And so Liquid doesn't have any support for this as best as I know, but a bunch of people are now building Shopify front ends in or like e-commerce stores on top of Shopify using React and GraphQL. And uh, Shopify has invested a shit ton in their GraphQL API because it solves this problem for them. It lets them kind of like get an ahead of time description of all the data they need to fetch and make sure they can pick kind of an optimal basically bulk loading strategy to actually fetch all of it from the database kind of efficiently. That must have been the very early days of GraphQL, right? It, it was, it was. The GraphQL started Shopify to power the mobile apps because they kind of have the same problem if you squint where it's like the mobile app screen needs to retrieve a certain amount of data about an order or a customer or whatever to display it. And uh, they wanted kind of an efficient you know, responsive application that was fetching stuff you know, quickly. And so they didn't want this N plus one sort of dynamic data access problem. But I think more important is the customer facing GraphQL stuff for Shopify. It's controversial, I would say, because it's like, it's quite easy to write a liquid template. And if you ask me, like for you, Sam, it's like, it's kind of nice to not have to give a shit about how performant it is. You know, like you just get in there, you do what you need to do, and you make it Shopify's problem to make it fast. And so like, in my eyes, that's not, that's not like a deficiency or bad, because it means you get to go faster and get your job done as a, you know, agency helping out e-commerce developers or e-commerce merchants it just sucks for shopify and so there's this kind of like mediation between burdening your developers or your users with kind of concerns and then making the platform's job easy versus vice versa which is taking concerns off their shoulders and making the platform kind of responsible for it and so this brings me to gadget like that is what a giant to stand on the shoulders of is if you ask me is a platform which tries to take as much of the burden off of the developer to take to to take responsibility for scalability, for performance, for security, for like prescribing the right data access patterns that can be made scalable or performance, so on and so forth. But that that is our mission is to build a software development environment. So like the place you write the code, the place the code runs, that is as productive as possible, which means the platform does as much as it possibly can to help you be productive uh, uh, and get you know whatever unique or special thing about what you're trying to do done. With that philosophy then, how do you not encourage lazy development practices because the, you know you <laughs> you can build all these tools and and they can do wondrous things but that encourages people to not really understand what's going on under the hood and and just become these entitled lazy developers <laughs> right right it is a great question so our approach has been to provide kind of like sane and productive defaults and then to allow developers to escape hatch out let me rewind a little bit. So what we want to be is the next Rails kind of thing. Haha, no coincidence. Harry worked on Rails for 10 years, like wants to make a better one. <laughs> what, we, what we want to be is the next Rails. But what's special and unique about Gadget is that it is both the framework 
the thing that kind of like organizes your code and kind of gives you these primitives to assemble into something cool and exciting and the runtime where that framework runs. So we're, we're a hosting platform that's kind of enmeshed with the framework. What it means is like when you summon a new database table, we can kind of like show you that and give you a nice interface to administer what's in the database. And then we actually like store the data and provision the database table that like backs it and make that database table performant and secure. So it's not this like development production divide anymore where you like download gadget from GitHub, figure out a Postgres to back it with, like figure out, make sure you get your node version right or whatever. It's like you, when you go to gadget.new and you create an application, it's like code sandbox. It's like right there, hosted online, has a URL exists, but the entire like stack underneath it exists for you as well. And so what we're able to do with that is kind of just like give you productivity out of the box. But to the to the lazy question, like we just push people to doing things in a way that is productive and also scalable. It's more of just like helping people make the right choice up front. So it's like, we suggest you use GraphQL instead of REST because for us as a platform, it lets us optimize those queries, like respond to you very quickly. It gives us optimization potential. And then for you, it's actually still a pretty nice experience, right? Like I, personally, I, kind of, I think I kind of prefer working with GraphQL APIs to REST APIs because I get, you know, automatic types and, uh, you know, really clear or really like avoiding request waterfalls where I'm making you know, this to then make that to then make that so on and so forth. And so I wouldn't describe our users necessarily as lazy, more of just like if you're a junior or an intermediate developer, you ha- don't have that Shopify experience to be like, oh, crap, got to be really careful about when we're asking for data and how. You just kind of are like looking for some guidance of like someone told me this thing's fast. I'm going to do it that way. I'm, I'm OK with that. Right. Like I'm OK trying to meet those people where they are and like help them. And then the final aspect of that is just the escape hatch which is that like when you become more senior, when you become more informed, like I don't want Gadget to impose its will completely on you. We want to, we have to meet our requirements as a platform, which is like, we're not going to let you break the security or whatever. But if you know better, you need to be able to drop down and do something differently than maybe our default that works 90% of the time. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that and, and getting down to, to sort of people's level because I think that's just the way the world is going, you know, of people people are, are becoming more demanding and they, they want, you know, things to, to be easy access. And if we can do that, if we can give it to them nice and easy and they have fun and, and build great things, then we should enable that. But it's um, the hope is that they do want to become more informed and they do progress to that senior level and and, and whatever and, and better themselves but uh i i don't envy the product or app life that you've you've gotten yourself into it must be uh, <laughs> it must be a difficult place to be to appease you know developers and and whatever yeah we're we're a picky bunch oh yeah <laughs> you're always talking about webflow so what <laughs> is webflow well webflow is a platform completely online completely in the browser that allows you to build websites using no code, zero code. I mean, it it has the potential to build low code websites, that's low code, but its real power is in the no code way of building websites. I don't know, it's fantastic. A lot of designers, I would say, have actually built their careers off of Webflow, which is really powerful really, because a lot of them didn't, weren't able to offer this kind of service. So designers are picking up Webflow and building their whole careers, being able to design a website and then being able to actually implement it and earn a great living off of building Webflow websites. 
So you want to start up a, a new company or um, bought your domain name through namecheap.com, <laughs> affiliate link down below in the description, then you can link that to a Webflow web website and um, start designing, start building a website with absolutely no code. And they do also have a templating library as well. So you can go out and buy a template to get started. And my first Webflow website was built, I kid you not, four hours. So if you want to uh, code along with Sam, then you can click the affiliate link that we have in our description for this episode, wherever you're listening to it. Or you can head over to thattech.show and take a look at the affiliate links there and click through to Webflow. And by doing that, you're going to be giving something back to That Tech Show because we get a little bit of kickback when you click that button. There you go. No excuses. So you co-founded, you founded, like, what was the team like starting Gadget? Like, what was that kind of inception story? Good question. So what happened was I left Shopify, not really that interesting reasons why. It was just a big company and I wanted to build stuff as opposed to, you know, manage large groups of people. And left Shopify, did the like millennial van life thing for a bit, which was fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I worked at a couple other kind of small little tech companies, uh, false stops, we'll call them. I tried to start a farm for a moment there, <laughs> mostly because I thought it was like, I really like gardening or just like growing stuff. It's cool to like stick something in the ground and then like come back a few weeks later and there'd be this like thing and you didn't have to do any work. It just <laughs> created itself, you know, that's cool. The farm didn't go super great because it, turned, yeah, it was uh, like a high density indoor vertical farm for lettuce and basil. So it was like LED lights and, you know, careful hydroponics and irrigation, all that stuff. But the objective of just making really tasty food, but I foolishly underestimated how free the sun and the rain are. Like when you're paying for electricity to light the plants and paying for the water to irrigate them, like it's just that much harder to turn a profit in an already like razor thin margin kind of business. And so if you want to do this thing where you grow plants indoors, they generally have to be like for rich people, if that makes sense, because it's like the only people who will pay more. So it's like, I don't, yeah. Anyways, long story short, started a farm. That was fun. But in each of these like things, working for the tiny little tech company, working for the farm, I was building like small little apps, as is my nature. You know, I think it's like classic developers over automate everything if left to their own devices. And that's what I was doing is like making a little thing to track the crops in the farm or like little internal tools at the tech companies it really just hammered home like how often I was solving the same repetitive kind of like, I would call them like mediocre problems over and over and over. And, and it's kind of the same ethos as rails, which is just like make the stuff that you do every time really, really easy. So that you get your time back to do the stuff that's unique or hard about each project. And the things that I was doing every time was just like setting up off, like being like, do I want Google SSO? Do I want like using an email? It's like, I really, for every internal tool I've built, I do not give any care at all about the shape of the login form. Like, I just want a login form by default. Please don't, like, burden me with wiring that up myself every time. And it's like, you could use Auth0. That's great. And then I was setting up, like, search every time. So, like, Algolia or Elasticsearch or whatever. It's like, people just kind of expect their tables in an app to be searchable these days. And so, it's, again, you can, like, use these services off the shelf to get this. But the list of these, like, I would call them necessary but not sufficient stuff for an app is like 20 30 things big at this point especially if you want to like build a business around it like you got to do billing or security or like credit cards or anything like that and so 
that was the impetus for Gadget. Was just like I think that there's a deeper problem here, which is that developers spend a huge amount of their time on this like undifferentiated work that sh- could ideally be going into the differentiated, special, or unique work of the problem that they're trying to solve. And uh, uh, that's what happened. So it took me like I don't know six months to convince my co-founder that this was real. He was like a PM at Shopify for a long time. He built ShopPay. If you've ever used that, like super awesome payment experience. Like the problem I'm talking about is like a deeply technical one. And so it was just like, it it took a lot of convincing to be like developers, despite being relatively well compensated and using a lot of big words all the time are still sometimes just like smashing blocks together, you know, to try to make things work. And like, like it's interesting for a knowledge worker, but not like a software developer to kind of, to watch them familiarize themselves with like how foolish and how time wasty the development process is sometimes, you know? But it, it opened his eyes, and so yeah, we managed to start Gadget together, and yeah, here we are. I think everything's mostly Stack Overflow-driven development, isn't it? You just try <laughs> someone's solution until it doesn't work, and then you try someone else's, and then you you take a combination of the both and make it look pretty. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so then Gadget. Uh, I've, I've been having a little play around in it in, just whilst we were talking because I think it's kind of cool, right? So is it is it just for e-commerce? Is it for, for other things as well? I mean, like, you know, how do I get in and start using this product? Absolutely. So the currently it is mostly for e-commerce users. You can use it for whatever you want and the, the product itself is very general purpose, but we've decided to focus on e-commerce right now and, and that's for a couple of reasons. The first thing is like, Earlier, I said I would love Gadget to replace Rails, and like that's outrageous, right? That's like a Rails has had you know millions of people hours sunk into it. It's like well loved, like it's proved out that you can build you know billion dollar companies using it. So it's kind of nonsense for me to claim that's even possible to displace. And if if we are going to displace it, it's going to take us ten years of like sustained innovation to do that. And so what we need is kind of like a little nugget of success to build on where we can kind of like prove out that a bunch of the decisions we've made work, prove that there's a market for something like this, that developers actually like it, you know, fail at a few things and iterate and fix them. And so we chose e-commerce mostly because we understand the market really well. My co-founder and I both work at Shopify. And so we're able to like get in touch with e-com developers. We understand their problems. There are some very specific, annoying technical problems in the Shopify ecosystem we can solve. And our eye remains on the kind of like general purpose prize but I think it would be foolish to try to boil the ocean and build the like framework to end all frameworks sort of right out of the gate. Remains to be seen if that strategy is the right one, but that's that's where we're at now is if you're building a, a custom app for a Shopify store or an app for the public like Shopify app store, we want Gadget to be like the very best way to build that today. Okay, let me see if I get this right then. So you're kind of saying don't use the Shopify API out of the box. Use Gadget as sort of that interface into that back end. Is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, yeah, to an extent. So quick riddle or quick quick guessing game for you. If you had to guess, what is the Shopify admin API rate limit? Like how many requests are you allowed to make to Shopify per second if you're like administering data? Oh, oh. 500. 500 a second? 500 a minute? Second. I was going to go for 1,000, but that maybe seems a bit high. I, like I, I, those are reasonable guesses to me. The answer is two. Huh. You're allowed to make two requests per second. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. That's low. So so how does how does Gadget change that then? Yeah. So the reason for that is that Shopify doesn't get paid per API request. 
like say an Amazon or a Vercel or whatever. And so they just ratchet it way, way down because it's like, it's just taxing them and their servers kind of needlessly. Merchants need some way to integrate their stuff. So they keep it really low. But my guess is that they've never raised that limit because it just costs them an awful lot of money to serve all that traffic. So what a lot of people building apps on the Shopify platform do is they basically replicate all the data out of Shopify and store it, a second copy of it in their own database that they can access as frequently as they want. And that's what Gadget does kind of in one click is like a fully managed data sync where we receive all the webhooks from Shopify. We store it in your Gadget database. We do like a nightly reconciliation where we go look to make sure that all the webhooks actually arrive. We like paper over the annoying differences in the, the different APIs. And we found that that really delights people that have like worked with the Shopify API before because they're like, I would have loved to have built the sync myself, but it's like a huge amount of work to just to get that. And the sync doesn't even do anything, right? All it does is copy the data. It doesn't actually implement, you know, some useful thing for a business. And so what's cool about Gadget is you can just get the sync, get the kind of like high throughput access to your data that you generally need. And then, you know, the first line of code you write in your Gadget app can be pertinent to the actual problem you're trying to solve. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, you know, that's a really interesting strategy that I've used, suggested, I suppose, even before for uh, for a couple of places where they're trying to get data from sources that are slow to give the data or the data changes, you know, very slowly over time. But actually, maybe they need it from many, many sources. Have, have your own local copy of that and you're making fewer requests, you give a better customer experience. So I think that kind of makes a lot of sense. But how does that then... How does that then work for you? Because at the moment, I notice on online it says that Gadget is free to use. So how does um, how does yeah. this work out for you, cost wise? <laughs> yeah, great question. So we're free right now, straight up, because we haven't built the billing bits of Gadget. Like we're we're two years old as a company. We've like to, we decided on this kind of a this Shopify specific approach maybe like a year ago, and we're still kind of in the throes of building building out the the final pieces of the Shopify system. And I think one of the final pieces will be billing. We will charge soon and kind of charge similarly to any other serverless hosting platform where it's kind of like you pay uh, a really small fractional amount of cents, you know, per request that your gadget app serves. And then also similar to some of the serverless databases in the world, we'll charge, you know, fractions of a cent per gigabyte stored, or I guess maybe more than a cent per gigabyte stored per month. And so when you replicate your whole Shopify store into gadget, yeah, you'll have to pay for that storage within that database, but it's like, pretty low amounts like a big shopify shop i think will cost on the order of four or five dollars a month to store in your gadget app and then kind of like uh, as i was mentioning before with the escape patches it's actually up to the developer what data they want to sync versus not they're able to kind of turn it on or say like i need high throughput access to this stuff manage the sync for me there but i don't for this stuff i'll just make requests to the shopify api and don't store it and so it's kind of it's up to them it's a non-trivial problem to like communicate this and explain to people like when you check this box, it's going to cost you money. But I don't think we want to hide that, right? Like the finding out about that at the end of your billing cycle is is a shitty experience for our users. What about um, you? Obviously, face this at Shopify. What about GDPR and, and data protection and stuff like that? Is it clear? Is it? Can you choose where your data is stored? Right now, no which is kind of unfortunate. It's something that, that we very much consider in scope because I think it's yet another one of those like necessary but not sufficient to building an app annoyances. Um, we're really, really well positioned to help with it because we own the framework and the database. We could make sharding 
or like kind of like multiple country data residency, like a checkbox in the gadget settings, which I think is like a godsend for a lot of app developers, right? Where it's like, I I just don't have to care about this. I can spend my time working on stuff. We haven't gotten around to it because it's hard, but uh, we fully intend to. So one of the things that looks really cool in this is the state charts. Uh I think that's really nice because, but I do have a couple of questions about it. So like, because this looks like, um, you know, the sort of thing that you would get with like AWS step functions or um, Commander, um, those sort of things. I mean, what, what was the idea for, for pulling together those state charts? Excellent question. So like Mo and I, Mo is my co-founder, working in e-commerce, like we see a lot of the kind of software world as like these like business workflows that the the point of the software that we were building was to facilitate, you know, stuff that matters in the real world getting captured in software. And so it'd be like, I want to order something from you. There's a bunch of stages to that. There's like, I need to tell you what I'm going to order. I need to accept the shipping price. I need to like submit a credit card payment. That payment needs to be successful. And then the merchant needs to uh, like say, okay, this isn't fraudulent. And then the merchant needs to ship the order and then the order needs to arrive. And like, that's a lot different than swiping left or right on Tinder. Or, or like tweeting, you know what I mean? Like there, it's a multi-stage process with a lot of bailouts, with a lot of really annoying checks to make sure that something's possible. I, honestly, I'm sure that there's far more detail to how Twitter and how Tinder are built than you know meets the naked eye. But we wanted to optimize for those like complicated business processes because we think that that's where software adds the most value. It's really good at like tracking the state of things or helping you kind of move things between these different states for, for making a business just that much more productive by recording the state of the world. So the state chart kind of writ large is a tool for like modeling real world processes in the kind of computer friendly way instead of modeling everything as CRUD. So if you use like a Firebase or a Supabase or even a Hasura or whatever, you get nouns that you control. Like you can say, I have the idea of uh, order. I have the idea of a fraud report. I have the idea of uh, fulfillment or something like that, but you don't get verbs that you can control like cancel order. You get, all you get is like order delete. It's like, I don't want to delete the record. I just want to mark it as archived or something like that, you know? So the whole point of the state chart is to allow us or allow developers to express kind of important business logic of their stuff using nouns and verbs that they control. They're decoupled from straight CRUD. CRUD stands for create, read, update, delete. Um, and, and kind of like let people build sort of, I would call it like real software. Like you might build it, you know, if you had full control. I mean, I'm a, I'm a real fan of, of, of state charts. Um, you know, specifically where, you know, you have complex business problems that are difficult to model, which actually I've tended to find is the case outside of more simple e-commerce land in, in a way. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose it certainly is part of like, you know, inventory coming into a warehouse or inventory going out of a warehouse, you know, where you were trying to figure out like, okay, well, actually, if I'm shipping to this country, then do this action. Or if I'm shipping, you know, doing something that's a little bit more, if this, then do that. But, right, you know, I have found it a little difficult in some places to convince people of the value of certain things with, you know, using state charts. And so my question uh, to you in terms of, you know, this idea that you've come up with is, um, where do you see developers using a state chart versus writing that in code themselves? And is it a hard thing to convince people to go, maybe you should try a state chart? Right. So just to just to fill the audience in real quick, 
uh, in Gadget, we have this idea of a model. And what a model is, is like a database table that stores, you know, a bunch of rows with a bunch of columns. You control the columns and you use the API to add rows. And then each model has a governing state chart that defines kind of how you're able to work with that model. By default, the state chart just implements CRUD. So there's a create action, a read action, or sorry, a create, an update, and a delete. And then you're able to kind of alter those actions however you see fit. You can delete all of them. You can delete one of them. Like you can say delete the delete action to make the model update only. You can delete the delete action to the update action to make it create only in kind of like an audit log sort of situation. Or you can add your own arrows and states and transitions and substates to kind of implement rich business processes. So the way we see it is that a lot of problems probably should be solved with state charts, but that there's a whole lot of hoopla to do that in most languages. It's annoying to wire it up. It's annoying to get the buy-in of your team. It's annoying to figure out kind of how to mediate between invoking actions within the state chart and then actually persisting the outcome. And then sometimes it's like not the right solution. So the reason why we went with the approach is because like if we can make it free to get a state chart, I think it changes the equation a little bit. It's that if it's like right there and it's like the natural and easy way to model stuff, that it's like two clicks to summon a new state or two keyboard shortcut strokes, we, we think that usage will be a lot higher. I think that has borne out in our feedback and research so far. But the point that you mentioned is also accurate, which is that a lot of people find them overkill or intimidated by them. We find Gadget resonates really well with like front-end developers, like folks who are, uh, uh, say, three to five years into their career. They're like we React wizards. They really care a lot about UX. And it's like, I, I don't know Rails. I don't really want to learn Rails. I want to get a backend for my application kind of going really, really easily. Gadget's like a great, great tool for them. State charts, are just, it's just yet one more concept that they have to learn to feel like a real backend developer. And that was maybe a misstep on our part. I'm not exactly sure how it'll play out, although we know we want to make some changes, which is, I think, kind of let you choose which model you want to use, or sorry, which style of behavior you want to use to implement your model. You might want to use a state chart. You might want to use an if-this-then-that style, like trigger and effect system, say like Zapier or Integromat or what have you. And then you might just want, like, it's just crud. Like, I don't want to see anything. It's just like, it works like Firebase, just like make it something I know. Not exactly sure how that's going to play out, but for now, the state chart uh, seems to work reasonably well. And like, you don't have to touch it. You can just leave it as it is and use the crud kind of as you see fit. Oh, that's really interesting that you're not 100% on whether it's going to stay. I think, I think it's, it's, it's like, for me as a software developer, it's what I want. But th- this is one of those hard lessons I think I won, which is I saw state charts used to great effect at Shopify to model all of these kind of like complicated business processes. So I want them, but it, it has been a somewhat tough sell, as, as like you mentioned. And so I, I don't think... I don't think we want to be so dogmatic that we like cram it down people's throats. You know, it's like, like you should think this way. You should be like us. We want to meet people where they are and kind of like make really powerful tools available to them and push them in that direction, but not like, you know, be really forceful about it. I mean, I think if it's an option, it's something that should be kept around, but maybe as you said, as an optional thing, because I think state charts are potentially going to get more used more. But I think it is that um, in terms of adoption, it is probably the more complex business scenario where they start to become difficult to manage in code. And actually, I think it's more of a life 
cycle thing. You know, the longer that something's been in existence, actually it's easier to update it and modify it if it's using a state chart than it is to, you know, get into the code, try and figure out how this, that, or the other is working and, you know, unpick it, et cetera, to try and make it work properly. And I think, you know, it kind of comes into um, a sort of almost microservices type scenario. You know, I think um, if you are using a state chart to coordinate your microservices, in some instances that makes life a lot simpler if you're trying to have decision points. I think they're great, but I think, you know, maybe it's more of a complex use case. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, a secret, or not that secret, but really <laughs> big reason why we picked them is that uh, they're declarative. And that lets us do a whole bunch of other stuff for you as well. And so that that's kind of been our big hang up. It's like, how do we keep the declarative aspect while making it maybe a little more accessible? And so when you define the states and the actions that move records between the states in Gadget, you get an auto-generated API that reflects those actions for you. So each Gadget app gets a GraphQL API, and for each model, there's a series of endpoints to read the data, and then a series of endpoints to like mutate the data. And each state chart action is by default a GraphQL mutation that allows you to like do this stuff. And so for us, it's really important that we don't work like say Firebase or Superbase, where you kind of have this like disjointed world of like the data store that has CRUD on everything, and then like functions that do stuff. We want like it to feel like we want your application's API to feel like a real API that a human designed, where it's like name things that do stuff, and then you know you like you can't delete the important stuff, for example, or that create action that you take on a specific record has business logic and side effects that like do useful stuff pertinent to the business domain. And so the the state chart is a really awesome thing for Gadget because it lets us generate this API for you. We even we even generate a type safe API client that knows how to call that API. So you get like your own little NPM package that can make calls to it. And all of that comes because we have this like description of the API that you want. If it was just code, you'd be back kind of in, you know, not not quite the dark ages, we'll call it the present day, where you're like manually specifying all the API endpoints and then, you know, manually calling them somehow or another. So this is quite a huge platform. (laughs) How many of you are working on this? Uh, we are, I think, twenty-two people right now. But oh, but wow. that we were we were you know twelve a year ago and two a year before that. That's quite some scale. I mean, so you know, if it's free at the moment, how are you funding it? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're venture capital funded. Like we raised a big investment round, kind of, uh, and apparently timed it pretty darn well because of the recent market downturn. We we knew it was going to be a really big build. And, and we knew we wanted to take this kind of like platform oriented approach, right? Like we're, we're not solving one problem. We're not making like a great VS code extension for writing better code or a state chart as a service system. We're building like an app development stack. And so like also in Gadget is like a secrets manager and a logger and like a serverless function orchestration platform. And then this API generator that I mentioned, like I, I could go on for a while. Yeah, it's big. But the point is that when you go to Gadget.new and you type in your app name, you get all of that just for free. You don't need to spend time doing this undifferentiated work of setting up logs, figuring out secrets management, figuring out an API, figuring out an API client. Like We just want to get rid of all that rote stuff so that the first line of code you write is pertinent to the problem you solve and that you can get it done in you know a week. 
I think that tech show needs a merch store. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel a merch store coming on. Can you, Sam? Yeah, yeah. Take advantage of that free plan while it's there. <laughs> <laughs> is it possible to use it at all without Shopify behind it? Like, if I absolutely, no. absolutely. Oh, like we've put a lot of work into that Shopify integration, but there's there's nothing that won't work if you don't do that. So I have a few side projects I built in Gadget. We have a few internal tools at the company that we use. It's like every time we do an internal hack days at the company where we like all oh, go build internal tools, it's kind of funny because everyone's like, well, I used Gadget for the first 30 minutes to build my backend. And then I spent the next two weeks or like, like sorry, two days building a front end in React. You know, it's that it's that like we actually I think did a pretty good job of making data modeling faster and standing up infrastructure faster. And like kind of the next big horizon for us, both within the Shopify ecosystem and after, is like building front ends quickly. And so look forward to some exciting announcements from that us on that. Yeah, so I was gonna start a new site soon, actually, that was gonna be mostly powered by Elasticsearch. Is that the sort of thing I could do using gadget instead? Uh for sure. I think like Elasticsearch is really good at full text search and our search isn't quite as good at it. So if you're very sensitive to the quality of the search and like, you know, synonyms and stop words and that kind of stuff, we don't have really fine grain control the way ES does. But if you're just like, I don't want to be responsible for hosting a huge amount of data and I want an easy to use API to get the data in and out. And like, I want kind of auto scaling out of the box which Elasticsearch like, doesn't have, and it's notorious for needing lots of babysitting, Like, I think Gadget would be a great choice. Yeah. Is it the sort of thing where you could use something like that in parallel? Like if I wanted the, the, you know, the core thing I wanted to be searched for in, in Elasticsearch, but maybe say that record has some relationship to something else? Absolutely, yeah. It, it would be like using a normal web framework where you'd be responsible for kind of like, I'm going to write yes at this point, or I'm going to delete or whatever. What would be maybe nice about Gadget is the uh, like Elasticsearch is notorious for the re-indexing process. If you're familiar with that, right? Which is like I have all of the data in Elasticsearch, but I want to change something about how I've written it. So you kind of still need a source of truth somewhere else to like rebuild all the AES documents to send back into ES. And so Gadget would maybe be a great great spot for that. That's very interesting. I think this is an ex- extraordinarily interesting platform. Thank you. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm amazed at the size of it, to be honest, the amount of stuff that's in it, especially when you say about having like all of the, um, it feels like, you know, the serverless stuff, the state management, the databases, all of that. It's a huge thing. It's almost like you've taken all of the bits from AWS that you wanted and, and made them simpler and easier to use because AWS is notoriously difficult. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely the intention, right? Is that I don't want to be confronted with a thousand decisions about what data store to use. I just want to pay an awesome team to have like be the ones that get woken up when something goes wrong and then give me this like happy little wonderland to work in. Well, trust Canada to come up with the nicest uh, serverless solution. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, I'm going to take that back to the team and they're all going to be like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess we are pretty nice. That's funny. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, no, that's really cool. Um, is, is there anything else more you've got to tell us, Harry, that we've missed out? Not really. Uh, like, thanks so much for having me. Like, I super appreciate it. And yeah, if anyone wants to learn more about Gadget Road, you, you can find Gadget on, uh, on the internet at gadget.dev. And then I'm at Harry Brundage on Twitter. So you got a Discord server as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. We have a great, we have, it's, it's starting to happen. We have a, a budding little gift culture. It's great. 
<laughs> well, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I'm certainly going to go and uh, play around with uh, with the test app that I've created and uh, and see where that goes. And I look forward to seeing how it how it evolves over the years. Actually, I think it's it's nice. Great, lovely. All right. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. Great discussion there and super interesting to hear about the early days of Shopify, a rare thing people get to see. Next week, we have Aussie Bayram from Ogury and the world of personalized advertising, a new slash old paradigm that Aussie's hedging his bets on a comeback as GDPR runs rampant across large organizations, changing the effectiveness of recent ad tech advancements. We thank you once again for tuning in and invite you to like, subscribe, ding, follow, comment, pledge, all that good stuff. Links down in the description. And with that, we bid you adieu. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye.